All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today is June 13th, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is going to be on the murder of the Rosenbergs from 60 or so years ago. Comrade, is there anything you'd like to say before we get started with tonight's class? Sure. So the Rosenbergs were actually executed 70 years ago as of June 19th. Um, so it would be the 70th, uh, I guess, if you want to call it an anniversary of their execution. Um, and so we'll go through uh, what is happening right now to clear their names. There is obviously an extensive amount of information as all trials and it's not just one trial. This is connected to five other, if not more, trials. It goes to trials that are in Canada in like 1946. So it could be a lot of information. So really, I do want, I would like people to take notes because it is, would be helpful. But we'll try to not be so pedantic and get into all those specific trial information. The, the point is, they were murdered by the state. Um, the more information that that I've been able to pull from it, it, it is clear as day that used as a scapegoat, uh, basically to make communists synonymous with spies and therefore with anti-Sovietism, which basically allowed the Cold War to go on for 50 plus years. So I just wanted to bring that up. We can get started. Sorry. Okay. So what we'll be learning today. First is anti-Soviet and the McCarthy era of the Red Scare that led to the Rosenberg's arrest and trial. Who were Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, their trial and their execution by Washington? The implications of the trial and the struggle to reopen the case. And so first we're gonna start with what led to the trial and the eventual execution of the Rosenbergs, um, which is the atom bomb hoax and the start of the Cold War. And all of this is coming from um, one book called The Adam Spy Hoax. Uh, William Rubin wrote it, and uh, he's written a lot of stuff about this case. And it is a pretty thick book, but it's quite fascinating. It is, I guess it reads like a spy novel, but like the most egregious, surprising spy novel in the sense of like, wow, they really did get away with murder here. And it's just, it's really sad. So let's get started. And so all of this is taken from that book. What we start with is um, at a few minutes past eight o'clock on Monday morning, August 6, 1945, the greatest single act of destruction in history took place with the explosion of the atom bomb over Hiroshima. The scientists who had created the bomb all agreed on four things. First thing is there was no secret of the atom bomb. The second thing was other countries would be able to manufacture the bomb independently, probably within three to five years. Third thing was it was impossible to develop defense defenses for atomic warfare. And the fourth thing is, therefore, it was mandatory to establish conditions under which cooperation, not rivalry, in atomic power would prevail. And it was not just the scientific community that was saying this, but the Congress of the United States as well. So this is from 1949. It is the U.S. Congress Joint Committee on Atomic Energy. And it reads, much confusion has surrounded the nature of atomic secrets, notwithstanding the conscious efforts of the nation's scientists to clarify this aspect of public thinking. 
There existed, for instance, an unfortunate notion that one marvelous formula explains how to make bombs and that it belonged exclusively to the United States. Actually, the basic knowledge underlining the explosive release of atomic energy, and it would fill a library, never has been the property of one nation. On the contrary, nuclear physicists throughout the world, including those who live behind the Iron Curtain, were thoroughly familiar with the theoretical advances which paved the way for practical development of an atomic bomb. The Soviet Union, for its part, possesses some of the world's most gifted scientists, as well as technical experts imported from Germany. Men whose abilities and whose understanding of the fundamental physics behind the bomb, only the unrealistic were prone to underestimate. So the entire American press in 1945 was virtually in unanimous agreement that there was no secret to the bomb. Practically all information media agreed with the scientists and government officials that science, industrial capacity, and know-how were the only elements needed to smash the atom for destructive as well as useful purposes. That the Soviet Union would develop the atom bomb in three to five years. So this starts the communist hysteria in the house of un-American activities. So now three years has passed. The year 1948, was as crucial as any other in United States history. It meant that finally, after almost four years, the American people would have a chance to register formally at the polls, their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the interpretation Harry Truman had placed upon Franklin Roosevelt's policies. It meant that they would be able to indicate whether they found the fair deal as an adequate substitute for the New Deal they had voted for in 1944. It meant much more too, for with the formation of a third party, the Progressive Party, with the former Vice President Henry Wallace running for president, the American people could express themselves as supporting the policies of a political party which contended that peaceful coexistence between the United States and the Soviet Union was possible. But above all that, it meant the real threat represented by the Progressive Party was that, for the first time since Roosevelt's death, the American people would have a chance to register, by their vote, a protest to the Cold War. The year 1948 wrought many changes in American life. The Un-American Activities Committee was more responsible than any other government agency for these attempts to transform the traditional American concepts of government. The committee had already accused Dr. Edward Condon and the first American by the committee, or he was the first American by the committee to be accused as an Adam spy. But 1948 was an election year. And so the charges on Dr. Condon were modified to fit the formation. The New York Times for March 1st shows that the A-bomb spy hunt first began to be used for political partisan interests. And here's what it said. A House subcommittee on un-American activities denounced Dr. Edward Condon, head of the National Bureau of Standards, as one of the weakest links in our atomic security and an associate knowingly or unknowingly of alleged Soviet espionage agents. He had been closely connected with development of the atomic bomb. Dr. Condon, the subcommittee said, was recommended for the direct directorship 
of the Bureau of Standards by Henry Wallace. So you see kind of the smear campaign starting here. The subcommittee said, we further recommend that the full committee address a communication to the President of the United States calling his attention to the fact that the situation as regards Dr. Kodong is not an isolated one, but that there are other government officials in strategic positions who are playing Stalin's game to the detriment of the United States, okay? So as for evidence to support its serious charges, the subcommittee offered none. As for innuendo making a link between Soviet espionage and the Progressive Party, the subcommittee offered this. On November 5th, 1945, Dr. Edward Kodan was appointed director of National Bureau of Standards. Dr. Kodan was recommended by Henry Wallace, who was Secretary of Commerce. The Bureau of Standards is a bureau in the Department of Commerce in this country. The communists have gone as far as they have in Czechoslovakia, but they have got pretty far because they got a man as Vice President of the United States. He is now their candidate for president, and he is the same man who recommended Dr. Kadan as director of the Bureau of Standards. So this statement is the clearest proof that the Un-American Activities Committee intended to try its case in the headlines, apart from its persistent refusal for five years until 1952 to actually permit Dr. Kadan to testify before it, is in the fact that six days before the issuance of the subcommittee's report, the Department of Commerce's loyalty board had given Kodan a loyalty clearance and had held unanimously that no reasonable grounds exist for believing that Dr. Kodan is disloyal to the government of the United States. So everyone was saying that this was just a farce. The House of Un-American Committee's all-out campaign to make communism and espionage synonymous was launched immediately after the Atomic Energy Committee had reported that its investigation had showed that Dr. Kodan's loyalty was unquestionable. And by clear implication, the committee's five-month smear campaign of Dr. Kodan was without any foundation in fact. They were just saying whatever they wanted. They, you know, is this before fake news? Or you could say this is really fake news. They were just wanting something in the headline. The committee achieved on its inclusive basis of producing its frauds, lies, and failure to deliver anything of substance from the spy investigation. But its atom bomb espionage investigation did remain in the headlines for the election year throughout. It is perhaps not inappropriate to note that some Americans might not have been displeased about the committee's sensationalized investigation into Soviet atomic espionage. There may not be any clearly visible connection, this is coming from the book, but in 1948, peacetime defense spending was larger than ever before, and the profits of U.S. corporations were the highest in the history of the world. So I wonder who likes those headlines. Okay, so the communist hysteria continues. But in 1949, exactly one concession was made to clearly express the will of the American electorate, and that was indicated in the 1948 election. The Adam part of the spy hunt was temporarily de-emphasized. However, with three communist spy trials, the 11 leaders of the Communist Party, Judith Copeland and Alger Hiss, hogging the front pages of the nation's press throughout 1949, a new kind of semantics was established in America. Such terms as red, traitor, and spy became so interchangeable in orlexography that 
by the end of the year, few Americans were able to tell them apart. Corporations, trade associations, and business organizations published advertisements in booklets and sponsored innumerable radio and TV programs dealing with the Red Spies. American universities sponsored endless studies, projects, and lectures that invoked just about every corpus of man's knowledge, save economics, perhaps to explain the emotional and psychological drive of communists. Churchmen of all faiths conducted from their pulpits an examination of the menace. The film, radio, and the TV industry finally found one issue around which their aims could join forces without conflict. The program or the dealing with communist intrigue and with Soviet spies. They refurbished their old war scripts, changed German names to Russian, and were in business. Children's so-called comic books found a new kind of villain, the Red Spy, anti-communists and anti-Soviet literature became a major industry for magazines and books. With uncountable articles and volumes written about Reds and traitors and spies during the critical first nine months of 1949. When I think about it, I think of a, like Rocking Bullwinkle and the obviously racist uh, depiction of the villains there. That came later, I think, but that's, that's what I think. USSR has the atomic bomb and America resists peace. On September 23rd, 1949, the president of the United States and the prime minister of the United Kingdom and Canada simultaneously released identical statements announcing that Within recent weeks, an atomic explosion had occurred in the Soviet Union. The election returns of 1948, returning Truman to office on a progressive platform, showed clearly that the American people had far greater interest in real issues, such as housing, civil rights legislation, anti-inflation measures, and the means of ending the Cold War. Then they did in shadow campaigns against Adam spies. But as had been true in the fall of 1945 in the discussions concerning the problems surrounding the United States' possession of the atom bomb, there was no chance for reasoned debates on the matter. For the militarists, politicians, and financiers came up with a startling discovery which provided, like a du ex machina, a resolution of the problems that had arisen after three years of the Cold War. This provided the sort of headlines that made unthinkable an end to the Cold War. It justified increased spending for military purposes and scotched the effectiveness of Soviet peace bids. It produced a further argument which indicated that it was impossible for the West to be able to trust the Soviet Union. After three full years of the Cold War defense spending, signs began to appear on an impending drop in employment. Thus, despite three and a half years of Cold War with its enormous defense spending, despite the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine, and the North Atlantic Treaty, something more was needed. So in January 31st, 1950, Truman announced order of the Atomic Energy Commission to continue to develop the hydrogen bomb. Despite the scientific community's plea to President Truman to break away from the stubborn deadlock and push for peace with the USSR. The USSR's response was also to push for peace, but President Truman and General Dwight Eisenhower would not allow peace talks. As for the attitude of the Truman administration, a dispatch datelined Washington and appeared on February 16th in the New York Times, and it headlined, 
president vetoes mission to Stalin for present time. And it said this, the president has said he might again someday essay a mission for peace to Moscow, but now is not the time, nor would any act of showmanship help the end of the Cold War. This was indicated fairly explicitly by the chief of the New York Times, Washington Bureau, James Weston, who said on September 24th, the day after the announcement was made about the Soviet bomb reported, the immediate concern in Washington is not that the Russians will make atomic war on the West, but that they will now launch a new, particularly deceptive peace offensive, a peace offensive in the United States and Europe and in the United Nations. So the headline under which dispatch appeared may help to explain what Cold War profiteers were really afraid of. It said, Washington is wary of a peace offensive. Yeah, it's like an oxymoron. So the communist hysteria in the house of un-American activities. Considering the fact that this total transformation of public opinion was achieved on the basis of unsupported charges and unsubstantiated newspaper headlines, it should not be difficult at all for us to comprehend that the next logical development in the proceedings would be taken almost as a matter of course. The production of the Adam spy or a spies would have given, as the headline writers and spy hunters were fond of phrasing it, the Adam bomb to Stalin. While the communist spy trials, as the majority of the press was soon to lump the trials of Judith Copeland and Alger Hess and the 11 Communist Party leaders were going on, the Un-American Activities Committee kept up its work. This work to be in the vanguard of a drive to convince the American people not only that there were atomic secrets which would be stolen, but that all reds which before long would become interchangeable with anyone who opposed McCarthy or the committee or who had ever supported the New Deal were agents of Moscow engaged in either sabotage or spying. It is undoubtedly true that the convictions in these three cases provided an apparent basis for Americans to believe in the existence of a communist conspiracy bent on pilfering defense secrets for Russia. However, it is even more obviously true that this concept was established not as a result of direct proofs offered in court, but by implications. And it is also evident that the impressions resulting from a solid year of headlines about the communist spies cases were totally different from any issues that were raised, disputed and settled inside a courtroom. Within 12 months of Truman, within recent weeks announcements, the communist 11, Alger Hess and Judith Copeland were convicted. Senator Joseph R. McCarthy emerged as a national figure. The Korean War began and Ethel and Julius Rosenberg and Morton Sobel and five others were arrested as Adam spies. And with the passage of the McCarran Act, anyone in America would be put behind the barbed wire, a detention camp for being in the eyes of the FBI, a probable espionage conspirator. All right, we'll stop here for our first round of questions and comments. Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Okay, I want everyone to notice the word reds. It's the first time I've seen that word in print in, I would say, 30 years at least. Today, the young people don't know that Reds means communist. They think it means a Republican state, how they vote. It's weird that we have not done our job by educating, we meaning communists, have not done our job by educating the American people on that word. 
We have to popularize the word. And the reason why that word was famous, because the flag that we held at demonstrations was the color of red. That's why we were called reds, because of that flag, the flag of revolution. That's what I wanted to mention. The other thing is that this book needs to be republished by New Outlook Publishers. No one's going to object if we republish it. I think we would do in the, the young generation good if we did that. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. On General Secretary's point, uh, we are the true Reds. So, but I did have a question. Um, why do we, as communists, support the progressives and the social democrats when historically Bernie Sanders has basically betrayed us? So, thank you. Comrade General Secretary, you want to respond to that? Yeah. I think I okay. have Just in one sentence, the word progressive meant something different in 1940s than it does today. The word progressive meant communist in the 30s and 40s. Our magazine called Jewish Life was put out by the Communist Party, and it was called a Progressive Monthly. The name of the party that we built was called the Progressive Party. It had a different definition then than it does today. Today it means liberal. It means social democratic. You're correct, comrade. But they changed the definition, the bourgeoisie, just like they did with the word reds. We have to take back those words, red and the word progressive, so that it means what it meant originally. Thank you. Thank you. And, and just two things real quick, just a brief response to that is a big difference between somebody like Henry Wallace and somebody like Bernie Sanders was when Henry Wallace was cheated out of the elections by the Democrats. He didn't choose to run as a Democrat again. Uh, he ran under the progressive party. Um, and so that's a big thing that that separates uh, Henry Wallace from Bernie. And I think it's kind of similar today with um, Cornell West and the, and the People's Party, a third party run. But that is a little bit off topic for our class. So the other thing uh, that I wanted to say that is on topic is when you look at the fact that the USSR was able to develop atom bombs, this is one of the most important developments in history. Of course, the Jewish... Uh, German scientists that came over to the United States like Einstein that brought this science and told Americans to develop it. They were right to do that. That helped it so that Nazis were not the only ones in possession of this technology. But just like that, the USSR developing this made it so that the United States was not so easily able to just use it as the uh, card to hold over everybody's head. Um, in the first couple years before the USSR had tested their first atomic bomb, Harry Truman would use it as basically like a, a cheat when it came to any kind of diplomacy or any kind of foreign policy. He would basically just go, you need to you know, shut the hell up. I've got this bomb. We'll drop it on you. We've got this big bomb. You don't have it. And you think if the USSR had never developed an atom bomb and there wasn't that mutually assured destruction, as we've all heard the term, then there were several, at least a dozen incidents um, in the Cold War and even afterwards in the War on Terror and so on, where the United States threatened to use nuclear weapons. And if there was nobody to, you know, confront them with any kind of mutually assured destruction, then they could have done it. And we could have seen more Hiroshima's and more Nagasaki's. We could have seen it in places like Hanoi and Pyongyang and Baghdad, etc. So ultimately, 
Uh, it was a good progressive thing that the USSR was able to develop atomic weapons. And it was a shame that people like Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were murdered uh, based on lies about them basically being atomic spies. Hello, comrade. Yeah, uh, first of all, I want to say that, uh, you know, Truman, he told Stalin before he exploded the bomb, he told him in July 45 in Potsdam, in outside Berlin, and he told Stalin, uh, we have this uh, particular super duper bomb. He didn't say atomic. Stalin knew exactly what he was talking about. And what it is, after the battle of Stalingrad, Stalin put Molotov himself, the one and only, in charge of the nuclear program. That was in February 43, two and a half years before, okay? So they knew. And uh, Molotov gathered the best scientists of the USSR at the time. And two of them said, oh, we're not sure. We don't really know it's for the future, blah, blah, blah. But a young one, he was interested and he was good. And uh, he's the one behind it all, starting in 43, okay? And they did use intelligence. And one of the intelligence they used was a dude in, in uh, the UK, Klaus Fuchs who was a German communist, who ended up back to the East Germany later on after serving time, but he did help. But they used intelligence to check what that scientist knew already, you know, like it wasn't the primary cause, it was uh, like a third check type thing. So that's, that's what happened, you know. Thank you. It was indigenous. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. I just want to emphasize that the USSR, they wanted peace, and so did Henry Wallace. And this was just a no-go for the other side of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the industrial capitalists. They saw those headlines and they said, good, this is an indicator that we have forces in the, in the politics that are going to give us weapons and allow us to create the weapons and push into other countries. That's the real fear, I just want to emphasize. They use the word, what was it again? A peaceful offensive? Like, wait, what? Why is that a bad thing? Like, it's deceptive, they were saying. Well, I don't care if it's deceptive, it's peace. But anyways. All right. Going. Uh, I have a question. We have to continue reading because the time, the period of that time, it's hard to understand it now. That was 70 years ago. Realize I'm 76. That's my whole life. We have to know the period of time. It was the period when China, and I'm going to use the words of the United States, we lost China as if we ever had it to start with. China in 49, what happened? They had a revolution. They went communist. What happened in 52? The Korean War. This was the period of time we're talking about. So please, let's continue reading. Thank you. All right. Yes, it's so good that we maintain the legacy and we, we continue to fight for the Rosenbergs. But the whole case and the, the Red Scare, the hysteria, we got right down to it with these classes that it was political. They talked about Henry Wallace. It was just a big smear campaign. And whether this is just related to all humans in general, it's definitely an American thing. I think a lot of us were raised 
in school reading the book, The Scarlet Letter, which was about witch hunts, which was all made up uh, basically to, to keep women down, but the book is fiction. And then we had the Red Scare, we had the McCarthyism, and as mentioned, this, this kind of stuff is going on the very last few years. So we got to keep fighting. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yep. Thank you. Um, I have two basic questions, and they're open to anybody who has the information. So first, I know the president can launch nukes, uh, I think, without Congress. Again, I'm Canadian. Um, but who who has permission to give or, or allow uh, nuclear information to be shared? I guess in another way is... Is there a proper way the Rosenbergs could have given any information and they just did it the wrong way? And my second quick question is, during this time of repression, I guess at least against communists, where were the libertarians in their their fight for you know their rights being taken away? If anybody has some context, thank you. All right, comrade, do you have an answer for that? Yeah, um, it's funny that you brought up Canada because actually all of this starts in Canada. Um, they had like, I guess, uh, found like this um, spy ring that didn't make any sense. Um, and really the origins of the Rosenbergs case comes from this thing that happened in uh, Canada that you can read up about. It doesn't make any sense when you get down to it. But that's kind of it is there was, I think, in 1945, an Espionage Act that was passed. But this was at the end of the war. And we remember that the Soviet Union and America were on the same side as allies. And so really the implications um, are, I'm not really sure if it was like they actually did anything illegal on that case, um, because like I said, they were allies. Yeah, I have information on that. You have the floor. Okay. We were allies with the Soviet Union, England, France. Okay. The French government in exile. Therefore, we shared each other's information. As we were allies fighting fascism, radar, plain radar, became very important in detecting when foreign planes would be coming in. They used radar. I always understand that radar information was given to the Soviets so that they can deal with the Germans advancing. That's what I heard. Not anything to do with atomic weapons. Nothing. So if one person can be accused of, unquote, spying, taking information from an ally and giving it to another ally, <laughs> both people on the same side fighting fascism, I find strange. It was radar, period. But that was not mind-boggling. The issue of atomic bombs was. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, just a tad bit of tangential information. Uh, the president can't even unilaterally declare war. Uh, they need within 90 days uh, right off from Congress. Uh, I believe it's the National Nuclear Security Agency and the Energy Department that uh, are, are in charge of nuclear procedure. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, so the U.S. government was so scared of the Soviet Union developing their own nuclear bomb, but in uh, 1949, they created a plan called Operation Drop Shot, 
which was expected to have um, been executed in uh, 1957 had the USSR not developed its own nuclear weapons. Um, the plan was that they would have dropped 300 nuclear weapons and other uh, high energy bombs onto every city in the Soviet Union, as well as the allied people's democracies. So the, the USSR really needed a nuclear weapon to deter the US from ever thinking about it again. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And it also just made me think I want to repeat one of the things I said on Tuesday, which was the fact that the USSR was able to develop their uh, atomic weaponry is important because not only did it you know, deter the United States from using nuclear weaponry on the Soviet Union, but I think it prevented us from having any more Hiroshima's or Nagasaki's throughout the Cold War and into the War on Terror. Um, there were many instances where the United States threatened to use it in Vietnam and Korea, um, during Iraq, Afghanistan. Almost every president made these threats, but they weren't able to do it because of mutually assured destruction. And the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, when we hear the history of the Manhattan Project and the um, Jewish scientists that came over to the United States with this atomic information that wanted us to get this research started, the, you know, it's always said that if the Nazis had this kind of weaponry, then undoubtedly they would have dropped it on all of Europe and the United States. And, you know, it's funny because the United States would have done the same exact thing if there was nothing stopping them. And yeah, I just wanted to add that, that it was we were really similar to Nazi Germany at that point in time. So I think um, a comrade mentioned the Salem Witch Trials or um, the Scarlet Letter. There was another book um, that I guess I was forced to read, but now I'm kind of glad I did. Uh, the Crucible, and I think that was by Arthur Miller. Um, Arthur Miller. And, and he was Jewish. And he basically wrote that about what was happening in the McCarthy era, but you just see the similarities. That's why he wrote that was what was going on at the time, which was the McCarthy era. Uh, it's really short. It's just a play. So if anyone has the time, but yeah. Oh, and then real quick, um, I just want to emphasize how the Soviet Union was pushing for peace and the American, um, I would say the government and ruling class, at least what they were pushing was that they were being deceitful by wanting peace. And there's a really interesting kind of interesting book called um, Masters of Deceit by J. Edgar Hoover. And it just says here what the communist bosses are doing now to bring America to its knees. So really, this was just all fabricated from J. Edgar Hoover. He just created this out of his mind, really. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, OK, I uh, I remember in the last uh, year when we had a similar thing about the Rosenbergs, uh, you provide a link to this uh, book, Cold War Murder. I lost the link. Do you have it? Uh, nowhere? Do you have another link to that book, a PDF of it? about the Rosenbergs, Cold War Murder? Yeah, so I currently have a copy of it. Um, I'm going to be sending it to the John Reed Center so that they can have it and scan it. I just haven't been able to do that yet. Um, so it's not currently up on like New Outlook Publishers or anything, but we do still have that book and we'll be getting it, you know, either transcribed into something or something later. It is a really good document. I actually want to add a, a fun fact on it. It was done by the Civil Rights Congress. 
the civil rights organization that we had set up in the 1940s and 50s. So just an interesting thing there that the Civil Rights Congress was fighting for the Rosenbergs um, after their their murder. Yeah. Uh, how come Einstein came to America and were there any uh, scientists that defected to the Soviet Union? Or Angelo? I think General Secretary might be able to answer that better. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the war, before the end, when the Allied troops were going through Germany, scientists were scooped up. And some was sent to the Soviet Union and some was sent to the United States. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yes, I just wanted to quickly talk about, you know, one of the things that the whole mindset behind this, uh, they're talking about how the Soviet Union got the bomb. Is we had the same mindset as the uh the Nazis did, the Germans, that the uh, the Russians were basically the Russian people and the Soviet people were basically a bunch of stupid slobs who uh, were never able to, uh, were never able to master uh, the ability to, uh, to build such a, a bomb. The fact is that during the war, it was the Soviets that developed uh, the missile launcher uh, that uh, that would launch um, multiple, the multiple missile launcher. Uh, and they were the ones that, that was one of the things that helped win the Battle of Stalingrad. And even the, during the war, where they would, uh, they would launch at one time instead of one missile here, one missile there. They could launch 50 missiles at the same time uh, and, and and spread it all over the place. And even recently, the laser operation, which many people over correct uh, people's vision, was developed in the Soviet Union. And there were many uh, innovations in the Soviet Union. And the Germans made that mistake to think that the Slavs were, were, were stupid and they were unable to, uh, you know, master the great German uh, minds, uh, and uh, they learned the Western hard way. And the fact that the Soviets did indeed had tremendous uh, ability, uh, great scientific knowledge, and they they did the, they basically produced their own bomb. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, real quick, I just wanted to uh, point, like, kind of, does the uh, BM-13 or Katusha rocket system is what uh, was just mentioned, if anybody wants to know more, and there's a post in chat. All right, thank you, comrade. We'll go ahead and jump back to the presentation. And so the next thing is going to be a video taken from a something that we have up as the party. The first 15 minutes is just goes through a lot of the information. The Rosenbergs and kind of introduces them and goes to the trial and it really talks a lot about how the trial went. It's a lot of information. So let's get the closed captioning on. Like I said, try to take notes because it will go by very quickly. On August 6, 1945, an American warplane appeared over Hiroshima and dropped a nuclear fission device nicknamed Little Boy. 80,000 men, women, and children were incinerated. Three days later, at Nagasaki, a mechanism nicknamed Fat Man killed an additional 75,000 Japanese civilians. The Second World War ended with the United States in sole possession of the most powerful weapon in history, the atomic bomb. The ashes of Hiroshima had barely stopped smoldering when a new conflict arose, the Cold War. The American people were informed that Russia, their steadfast ally in the struggle against Hitler, was the new enemy. Communism, the new threat. 
The USA's atomic arsenal was a key factor in its Cold War foreign policy. But while knowledgeable scientists predicted that the USSR would have its own A-bombs within four to five years, the U.S. military scoffed at such predictions. Ranking generals insisted the Russians were so backward they wouldn't be able to build an atomic weapon for 15 to 20 years. It was only four years after Hiroshima, however, on September 24, 1949, that President Truman announced an atomic explosion had been detected inside the USSR. Many Americans were stunned. Their sense of invulnerability crumbled. For some, there was only one possible answer. The secret of the atomic bomb must have been stolen. In June 1950, the Cold War turned hot as hostilities exploded in Korea. On almost the same day that the fighting began, David Greengrass, a machinist while in the U.S. Army at Los Alamos, where the atomic bomb was developed, was arrested by the FBI on the charge of being a Soviet espionage agent. The following month, his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg, a New York engineer, was seized on the same charge. The arrests of Ethel Rosenberg, Greengrass's sister, and Morton Savell, a college friend of Julius Rosenberg, soon followed. In autumn of 1950, the tide of war in Korea turned against the USA as a large force of Chinese troops entered the fighting. Although Truman threatened to use the atomic bomb, the possibility of Soviet nuclear retaliation against American cities forced the United States to rely on conventional weapons. On March 6, 1951, as the casualty list from Korea grew longer, and the nation's anti-communist mood harshened, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and Morton Savell went on trial. The charge? Conspiring to steal the secret of the atomic bomb and transmit it to the Russians. The presiding judge was Irving R. Kaufman, the chief prosecutor, United States Attorney Irving H. Saifel. His assistants included Roy M. Cohen, later to achieve notoriety as an investigator for Senator Joseph McCarthy. The defendants? Their chief accusers, the prosecutor and the judge, were all Jewish. But although the trial took place in New York, the city with the largest Jewish population in the world, not one member of the jury was a Jew. The source of almost all the charges was David Greenglass. Greenglass declared that back in 1944, his sister Ethel and brother-in-law Julius had asked him to acquire information about the atomic bomb, that he had done so in early 1945, providing them with sketches and technical details. Harry Gold, a self-confessed spy already in prison from a previous case, claimed he had been sent by the Russians to see Greenglass in New Mexico and had identified himself by saying, I come from Julius, and presenting a matching section of a cut jello box top. David Greenglass testified the Rosenbergs told him they had received a console table as a gift from the Russians. Ruth Greenglass, David's wife, claimed that Julius Rosenberg told her the console table was modified for microfilming secret information. Max Elitcher accused Morton Savell of having been present when Rosenberg asked him to provide classified information. The Rosenbergs and Savell denied all charges. After 14 days of trial and eight hours of deliberation, the jury found them guilty as charged. Savell was sentenced to 30 years in prison. David Greenglass, having pleaded guilty, got 15 years. In sentencing Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, Judge Kaufman declared, I believe your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb has already caused the communist aggression in Korea, with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000. And who knows but that millions more of innocent people may pay the price of your treason. It is not in my power, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, to forgive you. Only the Lord can find mercy for what you have done. 
You are hereby sentenced to the punishment of death. You shall be executed according to law. Who were these master spies? These arch subversives? Ethel Rosenberg was born in New York's Lower East Side. She had three brothers. David Greenglass was the youngest. After graduating Seward Park High School before the age of 16, she became a trade unionist and strike organizer. Married at 23, she and Julius had two sons, Michael and Robert, who were seven and four years old at the time of her arrest. Julius Rosenberg also attended Seward Park. After graduating from New York City College, he and Ethel married. Employed by the government as electrical engineer during World War II, he was active as a union organizer. In early 1945, he was fired from his job for alleged membership in the Communist Party. The following year, he opened a small machine shop in partnership with his wife's brothers, Bernard and David Greenglass, with whom he later had severe business disagreements. The nation's anti-communist mood was so intimidating that most lawyers approached had refused to handle the Rosenberg's defense, and they had to rely on Emanuel Block, an attorney with no previous experience in criminal cases. Most people were afraid of being associated with what the press proclaimed the crime of the century. But the shock of the death sentence was so disturbing that a growing number of people, few of whom had known the defendants personally, now began to run the risk of speaking out. Rosenberg's Sabelle defense committees were formed. Newspaper and magazine articles began to question the validity of the trial, and a movement for clemency grew across the USA and around the world. Despite the appeals of first hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands of people, and despite the repeated request for judicial review, time and time again the courts refused to reconsider the Rosenberg's conviction. In contrast to those who appealed for clemency in a new trial, there were others who insisted that the Rosenbergs were vicious criminals who deserved to die. Also, the FBI, Un-American Activities Committee, and other government agencies listed as subversives, everyone who participated in a Rosenberg-Sobel defense committee, or sent a letter or telegram pleading for mercy. On June 15, 1953, as thousands of pro-Rosenberg demonstrators picketed outside the White House, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, denied a petition for a stay of execution. Unless President Eisenhower granted a last-minute reprieve, the Rosenbergs were to die in three days. The next day, while Manny Block brought the Rosenberg sons to Sing Sing Prison for a final visit, two attorneys, Mike Farmer from Tennessee and Daniel Marshall from Southern California, although previously unconnected with the case, presented a petition to Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. In it, they raised the crucial point that the Espionage Act of 1917, under which the Rosenbergs were tried, was the wrong law, that it had been superseded by the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, under which the death penalty was permitted only when there was intent to injure the United States and only when the jury recommended it, which it had not been asked to do. The court had adjourned for the summer, but Justice Douglas delayed his vacation to remain in Washington and ponder the issue. The following morning, he announced his decision. It is important that the country be protected against the nefarious plans of spies who would destroy us. It is also important that before we allow lives to be snuffed out, we be sure, emphatically sure, that we act within the law. If we are not sure, there will be lingering doubts to plague the conscience after the event. I will grant a stay effective until the question of the applicability of the penal provisions of the Atomic Energy Act to this case can be determined by the District Court and the Court of Appeals. So ordered. The Rosenberg supporters were enthused. The Korean hostilities were about to end, the anti-communist hysteria diminishing. 
and new evidence had been uncovered which appeared to contradict important aspects of the prosecution's case. The barrage of last-minute appeals to President Eisenhower mounted into the millions. But Attorney General Brunel was opposed to any delay. He persuaded Chief Justice Vincent to reconvene the Supreme Court immediately. Shortly after noon on June 19th, for the first time in its history, the Supreme Court, Black, Douglas, and Frankfurter dissenting, vacated a stay of execution issued by one of its members. A half hour later, Eisenhower announced for the second time that he would not intervene. The defense attorneys pleaded with the Justice Department to delay the electrocution for one day so as not to desecrate the Jewish Sabbath. Instead, Attorney General Brownell moved the execution time ahead from 11 p.m. to just before sunset. Ethel Rosenberg sent a last letter to her young sons. Dearest sweethearts, my most precious children, only this morning it looked like we might be together again after all. Now that this cannot be, I want so much for you to know all that I have come to know. Unfortunately, I may write only a few simple words. The rest your own lives must teach you, even as mine taught me. At first, of course, you will grieve bitterly for us. You will not grieve alone. That is our consolation, and it must eventually be yours. Eventually, too, you must come to believe that life is worth the living. Be comforted that even now, with the end of ours slowly approaching, that we know this with a conviction that defeats the executioner. Your lives must teach you, too, that good cannot really flourish in the midst of evil, that freedom and all the things that go to make up a truly satisfying and worthwhile life must sometimes be purchased very dearly. Be comforted, then, that we were serene and understood with the deepest kind of understanding that civilization had not yet progressed to the point where life did not have to be lost for the sake of life, and that we were comforted in the sure knowledge that others would carry on after us. We wish we might have had the tremendous joy and gratification of living out our lives with you. Your daddy, who is with me in the last momentous hours, sent his heart and all the love that is in it for his dearest boys. Always remember that we were innocent and could not wrong our conscience. We press you close and kiss you with all our strength. Lovingly, Daddy and Mummy, Julius, Ethel. P.S. to Manny. The Ten Commandments Religious Medal and Chain and my wedding ring I wish you to present to our children as a token of undying love. At 8.06 p.m. that evening, Friday, June 19, 1953, while hundreds of thousands of sympathizers gathered throughout the world, Julius Rosenberg was electrocuted. A few minutes later, when Ethel was strapped into the electric chair, the sun had already set. I just want to say at the end there, uh, the Jewish Sabbath, obviously, it's important to start it before sundown. And instead of honoring the Sabbath, they just decided to do it before sundown. And it happened, obviously, the execution of Ethel 
uh, was longer because the first shock didn't kill her. Um, so they had to check on her to make, and they could feel a pulse. And so they had to shock her again. <laughs> yeah, as you can tell, it's a little emotional. So um, the next part of this is actually taken from the Jewish Affairs, the Jewish Commission's of the parties um, articles. And there's one more, this is the cover that they had. And it's also a really good poem that she wrote. I'm not sure when she wrote this, probably um, after her trial and before her execution, obviously, but it's called If We Die by Ethel Rosenberg. You shall know, my sons, shall know why we leave the song unsung, the book unread, the work undone, the rest beneath the sod. Mourn no more, my sons, no more. Why the lies and smears were framed. The tears we shed, the hurt we bore. To all shall be proclaimed. Earth shall smile, my sons, and green above or resting place. The killing end, the world rejoice in brotherhood and peace. Work and build, my sons, and build. A monument to love and joy, to human worth, to faith we kept. For you, my sons, for you. And the next part will be um, part of the article that goes into more detail of what was happening. Um, so the Rosenberg Sobel case, a prosecution fraud. When the Rosenberg case began with the arrest of Julius Rosenberg, then Ethel Rosenberg, then Morton Sobel, in July and August 1950, astute observers suggested that the espionage charges were a hoax designed to put a more acceptable facade upon that was essentially a case against communism, progressives, and anti-war dissidents. The judgment has been vindicated. The case originated during the period of the McCarthyite and anti-communist hysteria, while the U.S. was involved in its undeclared war against communists in Korea. J. Edgar Hoover and his FBI were calling for the um, internment of all communists and sympathizers. Communist Party leaders had recently been convicted and sentenced to prison in the Smith Act trial. Syndicated columnist Westbrook Pilger was telling the, his millions of readers the logical course of action was to put all communists and their sympathizers to death. Senator McCarthy and Richard Nixon were gloating over the conviction and prison sentence to New Dealer Elgar Hiss, and the unconstitutional McCarran Internal Security Act was about to be passed by overwhelming majorities in the House and Senate, overriding the presidential veto, which pointed to its dubious nature and illegitimate. The cloak, the unlawful nature of these acts, which shocked most of the democratic world, peoples who had suffered so much before and during World War II because of the anti-communist excesses of Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito. The United States was readying its justification and the Rosenberg case was to be this justification. We're not rounding them up and sentencing them for the political beliefs. We're not sentencing them as communists since communists are spies and subduers. It is for such crimes that they are being punished. In short, the Rosenberg case was the government's effort to establish a false equation in the eyes of the public. Communists or anti-war dissident equals spies. The trial began in March 1951, and it confirmed the suspicions of the alert observers. While the official charge was for conspiracy to commit espionage for the Soviet Union, only three of the hundred odd witnesses 
promise by the person, the prosecution implicated the Rosenberg or Sobel in espionage or conspiracy. It was testimony about communism, which permeated the trial from beginning to end. Those three witnesses were David and Ruth Greenglass, Ethel Rosenberg's brother and his wife, and Max Elichter, a close friend of Sobel's. The three were in the FBI's power because of their own confessed crimes, and they testified as the FBI dictated in return for promised freedom or uh, leniency. Neither the Greenglass nor Elichter testimony implicated the Rosenberg was uh, corroborated or documented. It was all vague oral testimony without an ayata of confirmation or support, filled with inconsistencies, impossibilities. On such questionable, flawed, and never-reviewed testimony, the Rosenbergs were executed under the watching and protesting eyes of the whole world. With regard to Morton Sobel, it was only Elector's dubious testimony which implicated him. Elector incidentally did not implicate Ethel Rosenberg, so the evidence against her came from the green glasses alone. 32 years after the Rosenberg indictments, Rosenberg proponents succeeded in presenting the Rosenberg's side of the case in the first in-depth hearing before an official government body. The occasion was a hearing before the Criminal Justice Subcommittee of the House of Judiciary Committee on the death penalty in Rosenberg case, December 16, 1982. This was an all-day hearing chaired by John Conyers Jr., the Democratic from uh, Democrat from Michigan. Roy Kahn, and yes, that is the same Roy Kahn with the, the Trump hearings, special assistant prosecutor at the Rosenberg trial, was the lead-off speaker defending the government's case and he was followed by Walter and Miriam Schneer, authors of Invitation to an Inquest by Marshall Perlin, attorney for Martin Sobel and for the Rosenberg Sons, by Michael Maripol, older son of the Rosenbergs, and by Aaron Katz, director of the National Committee to Reopen the Rosenberg Case. As the director pointed out in his concluding testimony, while all the Rosenberg proponents made an impressive case in support of the House Judiciary Committee appointment of a commission of inquiry to study and report on the Rosenberg case. It was Roy Kahn who did most inadvertently, of course, to prove the necessity for such inquiry. Kahn's testimony showed what the Rosenberg defense had maintained from, a ver from the very beginning, that the prosecution's concern was with the matter of communism rather than espionage. This was established when Kahn discussed the trial testimony of photographer Schneider as the most damning and damaging to the Rosenbergs. If the most damning testimony came from a witness who said nothing about espionage. The weakness of the government's case is apparent. Schneider testified falsely, it appears, that he had made passport photos for the Rosenbergs. More directly, it was established when Kahn replied to Representative Conyers' questions about the death sentence for Ethel Rosenberg by saying that Ethel was at least as guilty, if not more than Julius, because she was the stronger of the two, the more dedicated communists, the one who had influenced David to join the Young Communist League. 
since espionage testimony about Ethel was negligible, as opposed to the wild and uh, voluminous charges of the green glasses against Julius, it was impossible for Khan to make her more guilty of espionage. That would be too flagrant a contradiction of the trial transcript. Khan solved the dilemma by making Ethel more guilty of communism, but this conflicted with the charge in the indictment. While such contradictions might have gone unnoticed or prevailed at the height of McCarthyism, they cannot survive where reason prevails. It is important to be aware of Khan's contention that he was the most active prosecutor in the case, having prepared and conducted the questioning of the chief witness, David Greenglass, and having written the summation delivered by prosecutor Irving Sapel. Thus, Khan's concern with communism rather than espionage was not merely that of a minor prosecution figure, but it represented the prosecution's case. Further compelling need for a commission of inquiries established by Khan's contention that there is nothing new or helpful to the defendants in the Freedom of Information Act files or in the new evidence. If that is the case, it means that Khan was aware of the statement of General Leslie Groves, Chief Security Officer at the Atom Bomb Project, that he considers the information passed in the Rosenberg case of minor value. Also of the AEC, that was the um, Atomic Energy Commission, uh, Bickery's statement that it is time we stop kidding ourselves about the atom bomb having been stolen from us by spies. Atom bombs and hydrogen bombs, he said, are not matters that can be stolen by spies and transmitted in the forms of information. Judge Kaufman had blamed the Rosenbergs in his statement sentencing them to death for transmitting to the Soviets the greatest secrets known to man, thereby changing the course of history to America's disadvantage and being, in his opinion, responsible for the communist aggression in Korea. And President Eisenhower denied clemency on the same basis. A commission of inquiry should determine whether judge and president were misled by the FBI and the prosecution, or whether they deliberately misled the American people and world leaders. The Greenglass Elector testimony was not reviewed because as the circuit court explained in its decision in the federal judicial system, the matter of credibility is for the jury alone to determine. Readers are urged to, and this was happening back in the day, like um, I think this was written 1950 sometime. Readers are urged to participate in a demonstration at the US courthouse in Foley Square where Judge Kaufman still sits and where he presided at the 1951 trial. Friday, June 17th, between 12 noon and 2 p.m., the Rosenbergs were electrocuted just before sundown on the third Friday in June 1953, 6-19. And this demonstration is set for the third Friday in June 1983, the 30th anniversary of the untimely deaths. And there you go. That's who wrote it, Aaron Katz. We'll have another round of uh, questions and comments and possibly new members' introductions, but I don't know if we have any new members tonight, just so that we can get to the final section. So, uh, Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. I want everyone to know that I was involved in 1992 with the National Committee to reopen the Rosenberg case. 
I was I have the files here. So I was taking the minutes, you know that what that job is, at our meetings, which were held in person. We didn't have a computer doing it. And uh, it was in New York. And so I knew Aaron. Aaron was a great guy, Aaron Katz. Um, and I got, was able to get them connected so we can get that article in the Jewish Affairs magazine because I had been in the Communist Party at the time. So I want people here to know that, that I'm direct link with that period. The name is Roy Cohn. C-O-H-N is pronounced Cohn. Roy Cohn. He, that name should be familiar. He was involved with Trump. He died recently. There was a movie about him. He was a, not only was he a self-hating Jew, you know what that is. He hated that the Jews were involved with the Communist Party. He hated it. And he was called a self-hating Jew and he called himself that. He was also a self-hating member of the LGBT community. He hated LGBT people. And why is that interesting? Because he was one of them. He died of AIDS. Roy Cohn died of AIDS and he died a miserable, a miserable death. 90 seconds. He was, a, he was a person who not only hated Jews and used that position to frame as many Jews as possible, but he also had people, hated people in his own sexual community. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. It's not like all over 90 seconds. I want to give a little background on the issue of the trial and the evidence. Uh, David Greenglass uh, may have been involved in something, but he uh, Rosenberg uh, with his brother-in-law was not involved at all. When they arrested Greenglass, the FBI, of course, knew who he was and who his brother-in-law was. And uh, they saw the connection uh, that they could make. Uh, they basically told Greenglass that uh, they would arrest his wife, too, and they would sentence both of them to death. And they, they really scared him. And they said, if they, he would print it all on, on Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, uh, he would get very lenient treatment. And that's what he did. One of the issues was who did the typing at the meetings? Uh, and uh, Ethel, I mean, uh, Greenblatt testified that Ethel Rosenberg was the one in their meetings that did the typing. The only one worse than Ethel Rosenberg typing is me. Uh, it's uh, she was a horrible typist. However, Greenglass's wife was an excellent typist, uh, superb, uh, and she could have been any law, uh, top law secretary. Uh, uh, typing and uh, skills was uh, secretarial skills was so good, and she was actually the one that did any typing. Uh, when they made the connection, uh, once they made the connection. They realized that under the under the act of the, that were on the books, uh, they could not get the death penalty. So what they did, and if they were to try them in federal court, so even though everything was supposed to be federal, they then transferred it to New York State Court, which had F, uh, conspiracy uh, to commit espionage was on the books. So that's what they were tried under conspiracy. Uh, and they also, uh, that's how they brought in Sobel, because they arrested Sobel, because if there's three people uh, not connected, then they, it could be a, a conspiracy. They uh, they then convicted them all, uh, and then they 
one of the things that they told, the funny thing is, is that they wanted to get Ethel Rosenberg because they figured Julius Rosenberg would break. Two-thirds. They found out with that Ethel Rosenberg was the stronger of the two. And they had planned to round up all the communists in the United States, which are already being harassed. Uh, all right, and, and that that's why they they told Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, you know, either do that, come up with this lie, or we'll execute you. And to them, it was a, 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 a democracy and the freedom of American people. They could not do it. Often, um, the Rosenbergs are seen as martyrs. Why is that? Well, um, what the Un-American Committee really wanted were names. They wanted them to confess and give some names that w would implicate other trials. Remember, there were five other trials that happened before. And uh, the people before them, Green Glasses, they, they just lied. And they just did it so they could, um, you know, continue living. Rosenbergs could have just confessed and went along with this weird jello cardboard uh, thing that kind of seems like a, a spy novel and adds that intrigue. They didn't because they actually um, had, you know, like morals and they actually stuck by them and they, they lost their lives for that. They could have implicated any communists after that fact. Uh, had they have given, um, and if they would have went along with this um, conspiracy and confessed, that's all. All right, thank you, comrade. So I echo General Secretary, uh, the hypocrisy of the deep states is uh, potent, uh, right? Uh, Americans go, oh, there's 100,000 spies in the United States. There's 100,000 Soviet spies. They're using the United Front as, a, as an espionage recruitment function. Uh, and then uh, when the Soviet archives get opened, uh, we find out like the most potent ones are people like Jack Barsky, who just were sent to observe American lifestyles and stuff like that. And then we get caught doing things like uh, Project Blue Ivy. We tried to wiretap a bunch of uh, uh, Soviet com uh, underwater cables in Manchuria. Project Lincoln uh, travelers to the Soviet Union were briefed about uh, certain functions or missions they needed to do while vacationing in the USSR and then were debriefed on the way back. Uh, the hypocrisy is very potent because we see a larger heavy hand on one side than the other. All right. Thank you, comrade and comrade general secretary. Yeah. Copy this down, everyone. Number one, there was a film on this whole issue that was done by Hollywood. It's called Daniel. It's copied after a novel called The Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel is the name of the book. The movie is called Daniel. You need to see it. It's right on the rose. It's very accurate. Ed Asner, if you people are too young to know he was, he was a popular TV star. Um, he plays the lawyer, M M Manny Block, in this movie. Uh, that's number one. Number two. The Daily World, which is the best paper I've ever read in the United States, was put out by the Communist Party in, um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, when the party liquidated, it went out of print. They still have it on, but it's not the same paper. They still call it the People's World. It has nothing in common with the original Daily World that I used to get a subs subscription to. And I used to bring to Wagner College every week because it came out weekly, dead daily. I used to bring 500 copies and distribute it. It was a great paper. They had in that paper, and if I haven't been able to find it since, 
an expose by the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, where they offered the Rosenbergs clemency if they said there was oppression of Jews in the Soviet Union. Is that interesting? That's what they told the Rosenbergs. If you, as Jewish communists, say that there's oppression of Jews in the Soviet Union, you will be let off. Of course, they refused, the Rosenbergs. But remember, that was the big thing a couple of years later, 20 years later, 1970. Save our Soviet Jewry. What do you think that was about? Big demonstrations to save Soviet Jews. The, the Central Intelligence Agency never gave it up. But this is important that you get this information so that you know it, because knowledge is power, as we say. It nice. really is power, knowledge. So you need to know this. Thank you. Yeah, I did. Um, I know we're going to run out of time, but um, I think what's brought up a lot is uh, the Rosenbergs are seen as martyrs. And why is that? The reason why they're seen as martyrs is because like all the other people like uh, Greenglass and Gold, they could have just went along with this. They could have just lied. And all the um, FBI wanted were names. They wanted more names to, to kind of create this whole facade of you know communists being spies so that they could continue to push war. But instead, the Rosenbergs did not budge. They did not lie. And what that led to was they couldn't continue doing things that they wanted to. They couldn't, they just, they didn't want to kill the Rosenbergs. I don't think they had the intention to. They, they plead them to just confess and they didn't do that. Um, and uh, when you think of like the Jell-O um, thing that happened, like the cardboard box, why did they bring that cardboard box, the Jell-O? Because it sounds like a stupid um, like uh, spy novel. Like, oh, I have the, the cardboard box. Do you have the cardboard box, comrade? Yes, I have the cardboard box and it connects. It, that was to create this visualization for the American public so that they could just make anyone that has any implications of being a spy a communist because you would just need anything. You could just use like a pen and say that, oh, I have the same pen and you could have an implication, but they didn't. They didn't go along with that. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, I urge people to um, do research on their own. So what I'm going to tell you now, you can, with the computer, you could probably find this information. Uh, in 1970s, the Daily World, which was the daily newspaper of the Communist Party USA, had a weekend section called the magazine section and there was an article there on the central intelligence agency offering the rosenbergs this was in 70 the rosenbergs died in the 50s they were murdered in the 50s so this is years later that we found out that the central intelligence agency cia offered the rosenbergs leniency if they would admit that Jews were oppressed in the Soviet Union. Interesting. That was a political agenda that the government wanted. 
And who were they working with? Well, what was going on in this country in the 70s? All you people are too young to know. I experienced it. There was a campaign called Save Soviet Jewry. They were insisting that the doctors and the lawyers and the politicians who were Jewish in the Soviet Union were oppressed. Now, remember, they were oppressed because they were, their education was paid for by Soviet workers to go to college or become uh, dentists, doctors, mathematicians. That was the version of oppressed. And I just want you to know, I was in the Soviet Union in 76 for three months, and I visited the Moscow synagogue twice, and the place had people in it. Nobody was stopping people from coming in. There was no oppression. But the government, in order to follow with the same Soviet Jewry thing, and why was that happening? Well, what happened in 1967? Does anybody know? In Middle East, it was called the Six-Day War. They took all this land from Egypt and um, Jordan, other lands. Now they had to populate them with Jewish settlers. And that's why there was that call. So this is where the Rosenberg case comes in. The government was willing to, um, to kill them if they didn't lie and say that Jews were oppressed in the Soviet Union. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. Okay, um, really quickly, just a quick question. Um, do we, did the green glasses say anything after the trial or like after the 15 year prison sentence? Was there, was there an attempt to rejoin the communist party? And no, no, the green glasses, uh, no. They got off with their skin and they never said another word after that again. Okay, and they just went to the background. Okay, I got that. Yeah. And um, second question. Oh, yeah, it's not really a question, but it's more of a comment. Um, it makes sense what the comrade Angela says about, you know, as the CIA asking the, uh, the, the Rosenbergs to essentially say and publicly say that the uh, Soviet Union was oppressing Jews because around that time, um, the CIA was also trying to do a campaign where they use Lenin's words of uh, nation, uh, prison house of nations or something like that. And they, they also did an additional campaign along that. So it makes sense that they would, you know, try to get the Rosenbergs to um, say that the Jewish people were oppressed in the Soviet Union. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. And we'll go back to the uh, presentation. Um, let's just watch just the video. video. Well, after that, we'll go ahead and read the uh, letter that's going to be sent to Congress on this. And then we'll wrap up. Douglas stated in his opinion when he attempted to stay the execution of the Rosenbergs, there may well be lingering doubts to plague the conscience after the event. Well, these doubts have lingered, they have persisted. And now more than 20 years later, 20 years after the execution, there's a nationwide movement to attempt to reopen the case. This movement spearheaded by Michael and Robert Mirapol, the sons of the Rosenbergs, led to a rally taking place at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Los Angeles. My name is Lee Grant. When I was invited to take part in the rally to reopen the Rosenberg case at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, I had no idea what was in store. During the weeks before the rally, we performers rehearsed a series of dramatic readings, songs, and speeches. The night of the show, despite one of the worst rainstorms of the year, we faced a full house of almost 3,000 people. 
Roscoe Lee Brown started the evening and was then joined on stage by several other members of the cast. Suddenly, a loud explosion rang out above them. At first, we thought one of the stage lights had burst, but then we began coughing and our eyes started to burn. A cloud of noxious gas filled the auditorium. Some fainted. Others gagged and vomited. Our eyes and lungs seared, we left the stage and headed for the nearest exit. Over the microphone, the crowd was urged to remain calm and leave the auditorium as quickly as possible. The police and fire department soon arrived. They tried to clear out the gas and determine what kind of bomb had been used. Apparently, it wasn't tear gas, the effects of which are lessened by water, but some combination of nausea gas and mace, which reacts even more violently when exposed to moisture, and there we all were, standing outside in the rain. Someone calling themselves the provisional wing of the National Socialist Liberation Front later claimed responsibility for the attack. When most of the audience refused to leave the vicinity of the auditorium or be intimidated by the act of senseless violence, we performers decided to resume the rally. Almost 2,000 people re-entered the partially gas-filled hall, much more than was expected after standing outside in the rain for one hour. The house lights remained on, and policemen lined the sides of the auditorium in case anything else was attempted. We in the cast were so moved that we came on stage to applaud the audience for returning. The rally resumed with a series of speeches and folk songs. Following our presentation, Michael and Robbie Mirapol, the sons of the Rosenbergs, appeared to a standing ovation. They described their parents as they had known them in childhood how they felt about the execution and what they were now doing to try to reopen the case. At the end of the evening, sometime after midnight, audience, performers, and speakers joined in the much-used song, which really summed up everyone's feelings about the evening. We shall overcome. Okay, I'll read it now. And this letter, of course, uh, is, we're not gonna be sending it to everybody we're going to be going over uh, a list of all the Congress people, and and uh, we know many. We know who uh, would be sympathetic. Uh, I can even one in New York is even be very sympathetic, uh, in, in congressman in, in New York. Uh, and uh, we uh, those people. If anybody on the screen uh, knows of a, a Congress member, it's only have to be a Congress member or, or a senator. Uh, who they think that might be uh, supportive, uh, get in touch with uh, me or anyone from the committee, uh, and uh, and uh, we will uh, be help you. We will send out the letter and and, and hope we can uh, coordinate with you to visit that uh, uh, person. And here's the letter. This June 19th marks the 70th anniversary of the execution of Ethel and Jesus Rosenberg who were convicted on false charges of supplying the Soviet Union with documentations to enable them to produce an atomic bomb. We believe, as do many Americans, that the entire proceedings regarding their trial were corrupt and that their fate was planned. Firstly, although the claim against them was espionage, they were tried in New York State Supreme Court with the charge against them being conspiracy to commit espionage. This was since there was no death penalty under the U.S. penal statutes. 
and New York State had a death penalty. Also, as to jury selection, at that time, trial juries in New York were selected only from a pool of registered voters. Since the Jewish population in New York City was at least 20% of the city, there should have been at least some Jewish people selected for the trial. However, the prosecution knew that there could be some sympathy for the Rosenbergs, who were dedicated and loving parents of two young boys, and that there was still much anti-Semitism among the non-Jewish population. The prosecution, along with the approval of the judge, to ensure that there were no Jews on the jury. Further, the whole atmosphere of the trial was clouded by the ongoing anti-communism of post-war America, fueled by right-wing McCarthyism. And the fact that the Rosenbergs were members of the Communist Party fed right into the prosecution's case. Although the evidence at the trial was scant and questionable, the prosecution easily convinced the jury that they were guilty because they were communists. To this date, U.S. government files in this case have been deemed classified. <laughs> Sounds familiar, huh? And although part of these files were declassified and released, the entire file has not. Currently, all the participants in this event have long since deceased, and there is no reason to continue to refuse to release the entire file. We are therefore seeking in the cause of justice that you make a formal request to the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration to so declassify the entire Roosevelt file and let all Americans see the truth. This will be signed by uh, one of the members of the, uh, it's going to be going to the letterhead of the, uh, the Jewish Fraternal yeah. Organization. And uh, if somebody wants us to send it to their representatives, we would send you a copy and ask that, and we would uh, basically give you all background information and ask that you seek a, uh, over the summertime, when there's Congress is not in session, uh, a meeting with the congressperson in person and and, and try to uh, you know state the case and we have a, we're hopefully that under today's climate that uh, that they uh, somebody would be able to get uh, somebody to jail uh, and perhaps open it and once all the files are open then everything would be laid bare and the American people would see what happened. All right. So we can go ahead and do a very brief uh, discussion period. Yeah, when we did this last year, um, General Secretary Angela said something that was striking to me, which I'll repeat here, which is that the Rosenbergs died for this. So the least we can do is show up to a meeting. That's all. Thank you, comrade. I definitely uh, want to stress that. What did the UJFPO stand for? United, United Jewish... Jewish People's Fraternal Order. Oh, thanks. Yes. All right. Thanks. And Comrade General Secretary, you had your hand up. No, I just wanted to say that as in tonight's episode, I started crying again. Why do I cry every time I get to this point of the year, the 19th of June? I'll tell you why because that could have been me. It could have been anyone who calls himself a communist. Anyone who saw the Soviet Union as a beacon of peace in the world. 
anyone who had the the um the gold and the honor and strength to stand up and say i'm a communist and we should be standing together not dividing each other and attacking each other but supporting each other and that's why i feel this way about this event thank you thank you for watching this full-length class from the people's school for marxist leninist studies for more information or to join our free classes visit our website check out our youtube listen to our streams on spotify and chat with us on reddit <laughs>